1: Welcome to the Building Resilience podcast, a show where we explore the world of sport and deconstruct the tools and ethos of world-class athletes to create growth and optimize business. I'm Noel Allnut, the Chief Sales and Strategy Officer at Securo, and today I'll be talking to former professional rugby league player Anthony Minicello. Through the power of persistence and a hard work ethic, Anthony was able to maintain a heroic presence on the field. When faced with serious injury, he had to reassess his lifestyle and develop new strategies so he could bounce back into the game. When moving from sport into business, he's able to apply these learnings into his successful sports and health business, MiniFit. Building resilience podcast. Anthony Minicello, welcome to the building resilience podcast. Thanks guys I appreciate you uh having me on. Oh it's our pleasure um delighted to have you on there I've been a Roosters fan for a, for a long time since I landed in Australia and was living in the eastern suburbs and been following your career so it's uh, it's awesome to have you on the show today and I know I've got a lot of friends in the uh in the Roosters community pretty jealous that we're having a conversation. I uh,
0: appreciate it mate and uh I hear we used to live. I used to be neighbours back in the day in, in, in Bondi. So uh, yeah we, we certainly had uh, some good times and we'll probably have a laugh today about it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. What a what a what a place to uh, what a place to be, especially this time of year with uh, with the sun out like it is today.
0: Yeah, it's beautiful.
1: Today is really a conversation around uh, growth um, and an opportunity for the listeners to hear how world-class performers like yourself have really grown through the game and then the characteristics that defined your career um, and really yep. what that then those skills and how that's taking you to the next level. Mm. But what I might start with is going back to 25th of February 2000 at the Sydney Football Stadium. Um, you pull on the Roosters jersey at the age of 20, Um, after being um, scouted at a very early age and you walk out against the Bulldogs. Can you talk me through what that feeling was like and Mm. what got you to that stage in your career?
0: Yeah, for sure. I hadn't turned 20 yet, actually. I was turning 20 in May that year. Uh, But, but, you know, year 2000 was obviously the the year of the Olympics. So uh, they started the rugby league competition a lot earlier that year. So it could be finished uh, well before the Olympics started. So... During those first, I think six rounds of the season, because it was so hot, they allowed uh, six people on the bench instead of four. Uh, You still had to use your four, but you could have six people there just for an option. And I, I think it was around four or five or whatever it was. I got an opportunity to be on that six-person bench, and uh, that game that you just talked about uh, was the Bulldogs game. uh, Was my debut. But I only got on in the last 10 minutes of that game and we got beat, I think, convincingly that day. So the, the game after when Graham Murray, our head coach, come to me and said, you're starting right wing, uh, that's, the, yeah, that's what I really felt was my real debut because I had the whole week. I knew that I was playing first grade and I'm playing the whole 80 minutes. So I remember being in the sheds and you're just nervous, you know, like you're 19 years of age. But you look around and you have got these senior players, like Quentin Pongia, Harden front rowers, you know uh, Brad Fitler and Adrian Lamb and all these guys that have been played Origin and playing for Australia. And it was, uh, I think it was Freddie who said, "Mate, you know, no need to be nervous. You're here for a reason. You've been in good form. It's the same game. Just go out there and play your game." And uh, that was it. Yeah, I think my first touch, I ran out of the end goal and. Um, got out and, and the, you know, the, the guys were just going, yeah, 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 I Min, mean, well done. And, and that was the start of my career. I remember just uh, walking out that day to play that game. Was, you know, I had the whole family there watching and it was a um, definite special moment that you don't forget.
1: Yeah, what a special time to uh, to to put on the jersey and, and and kick off at a young age, and having those people around, like you say, like Freddie Fittler. A lot of the commentary that we have on on this show is around people who have offered advice, critical people in people's careers at, at the right time, and just sometimes those simple words of wisdom uh, to mm. to calm the nerves or set the tone uh, for what can be the next game or the next season or or, or a full career is uh, is so vital. Yeah. You played 302 times for for the Sydney Roosters, scoring 557 points. That is no mean feat. Um, You're a legend of the game and a man who only played for for one club. Can you talk me through your Roosters career and what are the key highlights from that career? There's so many of them. I'd love to hear the ones that really stand out for yourself.
0: Yeah, it's you know, 18 years at one club uh, in the end was – Um, an amazing feat as you just mentioned and something that I'm really proud of you know I I grew up southwest of Sydney on five acres and um, you know I was always naturally um, outside uh, active lifestyle uh, just because we lived on on those five acres you know out riding bikes riding uh, motorbikes and chopping wood and you know my first two main sports before rugby league was gymnastics and and little athletics so i was a long distance runner and a, and a gymnast so those two sports really created a, a good foundation for me to move into uh rugby league and you know we had my mum's a pretty good cook so she, we had lots of um you know chickens and eggs and veggie patches and cows on our on our land and we used to have whole food nutrition upbringing uh, without even knowing how good it was actually for us it was just what we did because that's the, my Italian background. That's the Italian culture. You know, if you've got the room, grow and cook your own. So we had a great upbringing as, as kids, my younger brother, younger sister. And I got signed pretty early at the Roosters. I was in year 10 uh, at school. And I remember getting signed for, uh, on a two-year contract to the Sydney Roosters. And I was like, yeah, this is it. This, I'm going to be a you know, rugby league player now. And my dad and my parents, who sort of drilled into us at a young age, Um, you don't get anywhere in life without a good, strong work ethic. He said to me, yeah, that's great, but you need to either finish year 11 and 12 or go get yourself a trade while you're playing rugby league. You know, he gave me that option. And I uh, took the second option up. I um, got myself a trade in, in cabinet making or shot fitter and detailed joiner and, um I, you know, for, for the next three years, I worked out uh, Austral, which is a bit further southwest of where we lived. And I traveled into the city to train every night. So I did that for three years in a row. So you get up early, go and work, and then you, you train all night. You get back home, have dinner, and you do it all again for five days a week. So that gave me a good foundation of, uh, of a strong work ethic to um, build, build something on. And then, yeah, I was, you know, I had three years in low grades at the Roosters and and, and got my shot um, in the year 2000. And uh, where it really sort of kicked off was when Ricky Stewart came to the club and we won the premiership in 2002. I was on the right wing and I was naturally fit and I really wanted to get my hands on the ball a lot more. And um, he said to me, look, our Luke Phillips had just retired. Our fullback the year before, and he said, "I'm thinking about switching you to fullback, or I've got Justin Hodges, um, either option." I said, "I'll oh, give me first crack." So I trained most of the preseason at fullback and went over to England to play the World Club Challenge, and that was my first game. You know, freezing cold, and uh, we're playing St Helens, and and we ended up winning 38 0 and I had a pretty good game, and and that really elevated my career to the next level. You know, making origin that year. And then Australia the same year and following that, you know, going on three tours and stuff like that. And, you know, the, obviously the highlights are the team highlights. I, I feel like, uh, you know, winning a premiership is the ultimate goal, you know, cause you, you train, you know, you start training a year before that date and you work so hard in preseason to build up a, a foundation to last, get your body to last a season and to be there in the last game of the year to hold that trophy is probably the ultimate, and, and I feel it is ultimate. I won some um, some really good individual awards, but I still feel the, the premierships and uh, winning Origin Series were the most um, enjoyable. Uh, but I'll, I would have to say that the one highlight that stands above them all is 2013, being captain of the club and holding up that premiership trophy when I'm 33, and you realise how hard it is to actually win a premiership. You know, I was lucky enough to get playing six grand finals, but, um, you know, through the mid-2000s, we had a bit of a dip and didn't make the semis for a couple of years. And I, I got injured for four years in a row, and I'm sure we'll talk about that for the, in the podcast today. Um, so it's you, you really uh, start to realise that, you know, professional sport, you, you don't win every year. There's so many other good teams, so many other good players, and when that comes around again, you know, I was 22 when I won the first one then 33 when I won the second and that one was, you know, 2013 was an ultimate highlight. Yeah, I remember
1: that game well. Actually, it was an awesome one, in there to uh, to see the first fullback as well to captain the team in a grand final since uh, since Frank McMillan in 1934. So um, a huge uh, a huge accolade to to do that and lift the trophy. Um, it's a bit of a funny story from me and some mates on that day. My uh, a friend of mine had got a corporate box and uh, he yeah. was meant to have eight clients going there and he'd handed his notice in about three weeks before the uh, grand final and forgot to invite <laughs> any clients but still managed to get the ticket so we got uh, we got wined and dined <laughs> for, for, for good, that yeah. game so yeah i <laughs> probably still own one for that one but I remember it well for, for all the right reasons not just the the free booze that kept arriving at our table yeah that's it <laughs> um, yeah. after that 2013 season um, you went on to uh, Captain it. Yes. Captaining teams, driving players to deliver outcomes, motivating, etc. And obviously, you'd already captained uh, the Roosters very successfully. Could you talk me through your captaining style and the ways in which you uh, delivered motivation to the teams?
0: Yeah, so, you know, when I was young, it was just, I was just a boy out of the gate. Everything was fast and uh, lived fast off the field as well. Um, and I didn't. You know, when you're in your early 20s, you don't see yourself becoming a leader and a captain. But, you know, when I went through uh, my injuries, you know, 2006, 2007, 2008, 2009, four years in a row, that's when I sort of started to evolve. I started to educate myself. Um, I started to de- develop a, a natural leadership in, in that way. So, uh, you know, for me as a leader, it wasn't, um, you know, yelling and screaming and, and whatnot. It was, you know, obviously um, a a bit of talk, but, you know, leading through your actions, consistent actions is a big one. You know, being consistent in uh, professional sport or being disciplined is paramount. You know, you need to, um, you know, come into training and do your prehab before your weight session or making sure that you're doing your extras and, you know, your video work and, and, you know, not just for one week because you had uh, an average game uh, do it every week. And then people start to see that type of culture. Uh, You know, when you set, we had standards uh, upon ourselves that, that we set, um, just little things like you know we we make sure that you put your weights away every time you finish your weight session or you, you take your strapping tape off. You just don't throw it on the ground for the guys to pick up. You do it yourself. Make sure you throw it in the bin. You know we had a, a rule that when we had um, massage and recovery that we weren't on our mobile phones. It was purely a recovery point, so you're not preoccupied. You that's really relaxation time, and we, we had to make sure that we held each other accountable because. You know, sometimes someone grabs their mobile phone or doesn't put their rubbish in the bin and and we as a leadership group and myself as captain, we've got to make sure that um, we hold each other accountable when something does go wrong. And so that they're little things that really develop into a winning culture. So making sure that I was on top of that each day was paramount. Uh, and then making sure that, um, you know, as a fullback for me that I'm out there doing my extras. And if the, a senior players out there doing the extras and more, more than likely a young kid's going to come out and, and do some catching with you, or you just go, you, you, you just say, yeah, come on, mate, let's go. Let's do some catching for as a young winger or a young fullback that's coming through, um, you pull them with you. Um, so the style, it was, I suppose a natural style, but it was all about holding, each other accountable to the standards that we, we we set. And that was the players. You know, we get into a room at the start of the year and our coach sort of leads a direction. But we come up with the standards. We come up with our trademarks that we want to live by for that year. And then it's up to myself and the leadership group and all players to actually um, make sure that we're driving those uh, standards that we did set.
1: Those standards are so important, and likewise
0: the consistency.
1: Uh, as you mentioned in there, everything that you do, you you want to do that repeatable and be accountable for that repeatability and making sure that, like you say, you're the you're the last one on the training ground doing the drills, leading by example, um, and not just doing it once, doing it many times over and over again. Mm. Did you have any habits or rituals that were
0: unique to Anthony Minicello? Uh, you know what, I, I I wasn't a superstitious guy and still not, uh, but my wife is and. You know, um, she always made sure that I wore red Speedos every game because apparently in the uh, Italian sort of culture, it's, it wards away the evil, you know, so you don't get injured. So that was quite funny. So I wore them for her. Um, but lucky, you know, we had uh, red Speedos anyway, Roosters ones. So that was all cool. Um, but no no rituals at all. Um, but, you know, I would... I would always go into a game confident if I've done the work, the hard work. So that mean that means doing the training that the coaches provide you each week. But for me as a fullback, I needed to do extra catching high balls, low balls uh, every day after every after every field session. I would catch. Now, some field sessions I would um, be tired and a little bit sore. So I'll, get, I'll set myself a target of just doing 10 catches, 10 high balls, 10 low balls, and I'm out. Go do your recovery. But on other days when I'm feeling good, then I'll just repetition, catch, 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 catch. And what, what I was training is all the muscle memory stuff. So when you get into a game and it's 80,000 people yelling and screaming, you can't hear anyone, and that ball goes up. Now, I've done, I've done this a 1,000 times. It just becomes automatic. Um, so that that was the physical prep that I needed to do each week. And then on the other side, which is 50% of your, as a sportsman now, is mental prep. So I would always visualize my game. Two, two three days out, visualize how I wanted to play, um, visualize being fatigued, but pushing through that fatigue barrier. Um, you know, amazing plays you know scoring tries you just dream big right you you you, you visualize it all uh, and towards the end of my career that visualization turned into more meditation so your body is in a much calmer state and you think clearer uh, mental clarity from all that so that's that that was my preparation each week was the training coaches provided us then the extras of lots of catching and then the visualization um was what i had what for me what i had to get ticked off each week to feel confident and if i ticked those three things off training from the coaches my extras and the mental prep uh i would always go into a game confident that i would play well and if i didn't do one of those things then that creates doubt in your mind and when you got doubt in professional sport things happen at lightning speed that's when mistakes happen
1: It sounds like a, a, a lot of efficiency um, from what, what I'm hearing there. Not only when the red speedos being able to walk from uh, North Bondi up to the grassy knoll and then straight onto the pitch. That's uh, that's some good efficiency there. Um, <laughs> but the other piece there you mentioned around that kind of mental game um, and having the or being in control of your thoughts, in control of understanding what comes and goes on the field and off the field. A lot of the a lot of the themes of the conversations we've had with other elite sports people, such as Simon Cattage and, and Matt Dunning and, and Shane Lee, over the last few weeks, um, it really sounds like there's a theme, and I think that might, might just be a sign of the times, where they started off very much on the, the physical aspect of the game um, in the early days, kind of coming through in the in the in, in, in the late '90s and, and 2000s, but really more specifically in the in the last few years that. Real shift towards the mental part of the game um, and how we switch on switch on those brain cells to to deliver a significant uh, impact uh, to the uh, on, on the sports field. one of the other areas around that is obviously the the mental game around coming back from setbacks um, and you 've had some significant injuries um, and resilience has been something that 's defined your career playing for New South Wales on a on a Wednesday, backing up for the Roosters, playing through injuries, having to go through some serious operations in order to get back on the field. Let's talk about that resilience and, and, and what redefined really your recovery from these injuries that allowed you to then continue your career and
0: continue the growth within that. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think, you know, in any type of adversity, it's when your your true character comes out. You know, when things are going well, everything's flying and everyone's happy, and you know that's that's all easy, isn't it? And I found that in the first six years of my career, I never got injured. And I was making grand finals. I was playing for Australia, I was playing for New South Wales, I was winning these awards. Everything came easy to me because I had a really strong foundation of where I grew up and the food that I ate. Um, but you know, I, I soon I, I soon uh, whittled that away because you know, there's a huge drinking culture back in the early 2000s. We'll drink all weekend, train our butt off, and play arguably the the, the toughest contact sport in the world every week, and, and the cycle just kept going like that. Drinking, training, playing, drinking, training, playing. Um, so my body started to deteriorate um, from the inside out, basically. Um, Two bulging discs in 2005, but played on through needles and quarter zones and whatnot and um, all that type of stuff. And then in 2006, uh, you know, the disc just ruptured. It had enough because I wasn't providing it the right nutrition and the right recovery. And, you know, at, at that point in time, I played more games than anyone in the three year period. And I was only 88 kilo small compared to these other guys that I was playing. So I thought, you know, I'll, I'll get this operation, one of the first in the league at the time. I'll take the rest of the year off and come back bigger and better in 2007. So I did that. And by then, you know, the, the operations in our keyhole with back injuries, but mine was in a big incision back in 2006. So I still had lots of scar tissue and lots of uh, pain that was centralised in my lower back. I started taking anti-inflammatories daily, you know, morning and night, morning and night, thinking they will helping me. Um, so, 2007, I only played 10 games. I played uh, 10 games, got back into the blue squad. And, you know, we were in camp for game two. And I literally just get out of bed and put my socks on. And I hear this click in my back, and I, my back goes into full spasm. And uh, I have nerve pain running down the opposite leg this time, which I had previous to the year before. I had to get ruled out of that game because I got stuck on the floor for a couple of hours. And uh, I go in and get another operation on the disc above because the disc above ruptures. So now I've had two back operations, 6 07. I'm preparing for the 08 season, and I only played, I think, six, seven games. And I twinge a, uh, I thought I pinched a nerve in my neck. I was just on the bench press pushing out a rep. And I go out and play that game, and towards the end of the game, I squeeze the water bottle to get the water out, and I, my wrist just caves in. I had no strength or anything in my fingers, in my wrist. Couldn't get the water out of the bottle, and I thought, that's oh, – oh, that's strange. Let's, you know, finish the game off, tell the doctor. And he said, that doesn't sound right at all. Now, MRI um, comes back again and I had a significant disc bulge in my C5, C6 vertebra up in my neck. And, it, you know, it was showing one millimetre away from my spinal cord. You know, any type of hit could put me in a wheelchair. So that really um, sent the waves through the body. And I was thinking, you know, what the hell is going on with my spine? You know, I've had two back operations. I had a smaller disc bulge in my mid-back and now I've got this huge disc bulge in my neck. What the hell is going on? So again, you now I'm seeing surgeons and up at St. Vincent's Hospital now for the last three years, I know all the doctors up there and they my MRI my whole back and the surgeon just looks at me and said, well, I think you should um, maybe find a new career. And I was like, why is that? And he said, look, All your discs here are black. You know, in someone that's got a healthy spine, they should be white. You know, they're your cushioning system for running, sprinting, grappling. Yours are all dehydrated. This is why they're black. This is why they start rupturing and bulging out. And I said to him, I said, well, how do you fix it? And he had no answer for me. And I had access to all the best doctors, best specialists. And they were saying, you know, it's pretty hard to rehydrate a disc again, let alone all of them. Yours are all black, and that, that was the news that was handed down at, at that time in 2008. And I was pretty lucky that I met my wife Terry during this period, and she was always pushing me to go find answers. You got to find out the reasons why this is happening to you. Why is your or your disc black compared to someone else that isn't? Why? 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 So I went on this quest to try and find out what was going on. Like, you know, conventional, holistic. I was seeing everyone. And, you know, I've ran into um, a guy who's good friends of mine now, Aaron McKenzie, you know, he's got a a training studio called Origin of Energy. And I went to him and he said, you can repair your body if you're willing to make some sacrifices in your lifestyle, um, start uh, eating better, and your body will repair itself if you give it time to. So I was invested in that straight away. So I started working with him once a week and, um you know, I started to take some of these training programs back into the rooster gym and they'll let me do what I wanted at that stage because even the roosters didn't know how to fix my spine. I was still on contract for another year. So I started to feel a little bit better and I, I was rolling around. This is 2009, pre-season now. I started to feel a bit stronger in my core and my spine and it's round two down in Canberra, and I do all my ligaments in my ankle, syndesmosis injury, injury uh, and a spiral fracture in my fibula uh, up, up under my knee. Uh, it was a big rotation injury. I thought I broke my ankles. I heard a huge crack, but I had a spiral fracture plus all my three major ligaments that hold the tibia and fibula together all ruptured. So I'm out for another twenty-two weeks. I think it was, and I was coming off contract. Um, and lucky, lucky enough, the Roosters gave me a one-year incentive deal, match payments, and I took that up. But this is this is the point where I started to uh, actually learn about the power of nutrition and the role it plays within the body um, and how we can actually heal ourselves from what we put in our mouth. And it was quite amazing. I dived into the food system really deeply and, I started to just eat more whole fresh food, more pastured protein or the quality of your produce really matters, you know, seasonal fruit and veg, lots of bone broth, good, healthy fats, some nuts and seeds and, you know, um, intermittent fasting, not um, shoving food in my mouth from morning to night every day. And slowly my body just repaired and repaired and repaired. And it's quite amazing and uh, now that I've, I've studied nutrition now as well, um, that, that food is, is medicine. If we, if we provide it the right nutrition, our body does turn over millions of cells daily. So that means if we're pro- providing it the right nutrition, then we're allowing our body to evolve, develop, regenerate at an accelerated rate. And it's quite amazing when you actually um, commit to good food, what can happen. That's a
1: fascinating look on resilience and training yourself and using the all the tools that you've got right in front of you. And it's interesting yeah. going back to the basics you mentioned there, around uh, when you, you were you were young and you were eating all the the homemade food from uh, yep. from your family, and then. Going full circle again back to those whole foods and, and really looking after your body. So many of the resources we need to be resilient and, and really prosper in our lives are, are right in mm. front of us. Right. We just uh, right. we often get caught up with the confusion of the of the hype around other things. I'd like to get into a bit more of that because it's a really interesting way of looking at how you've then gone into into business. Um, and I'd like to talk a bit about your 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 business mini fit. Could you talk me through the what t- took you from off the field into the into the business environment and, and how you how are
0: flourishing there? Yeah. So yeah you know, through my injury period where you know I've sort of through that period I I got my level one and two coaching license. I got my level one strength and conditioning course done. I had cert for and sport development um, you know, first aid, I went and did some courses um, and started to uh, educate myself a little bit more, um, just finishing up uh, nutrition at the moment to be a uh, qualified nutritionist as well. So I I had a, a look like, what happens if I don't come back and play football? What am I going to do? I didn't want to go back and do cabinet making. So I, in 2010, I just registered the name Minifit and I, I always loved working with kids when the Roosters did their holiday clinics and and all that type of stuff. So I registered the business, Minifit, and in 2012, I um, got someone to help me out. I was still playing and I had a couple of schools that I'll go into and run PE programs for them. Um And that was going um, well, but I was still playing. So I found it hard to uh, jump into it wholeheartedly, but I still had it there ticking over. And then when I retired in 2014, um, I started running holiday clinics for the club industry. So RSLs, bowling clubs and leagues clubs. So every school holidays, I'll go out to say Wentworthville Leagues or Mounties and and run a day for primary age kids, five to 12 year olds. Uh, And that's ticking over really nicely and then I um, reconnected with a former teacher of mine uh, in primary school, and he was coming back from teaching in Hong Kong and and uh, and what, was looking for some more work. And I said, "Oh, well, I've got MiniFit." And he goes, "How about I align your five principles, which is you know exercise, nutrition, hydration, sleep, and screen time, which I talk to the kids about how to grow up healthy and strong, and I'll align your program to the New South Wales PDHPE syllabus." And I said, "Fantastic, let's do it." So we started rolling that out in schools, um, really out southwest, and it started bubbling away. And I started working with about fifteen schools out there. And uh, then obviously COVID hit, <laughs> so yeah, you know, we weren't allowed to go into schools, weren't allowed to do my holiday clinics. So uh, I had to sort of switch and evolve the business quite quickly. And I bought a platform and started doing online fitness, so you can train with me. I'll do ten to twenty-minute bodyweight workouts, hit workouts. Uh, where people can just train in the comfort of their own home and pay $29 a month and they get an on-demand section where there's lots of videos, lots of different workouts or uh, train live with me every Tuesday and Thursday afternoon. Uh, And then uh, the first part of COVID sort of dwindled away and I got back into the schools. So now I've got a couple of different arms to the business and especially the online fitness, which I didn't have, um, but that came along because of COVID um, so, you know, we've got a big, you know, 2022 planned with lots of schools booking in out, out Southwest. And I want to sort of start to grow that business a lot more where we, we're running PE programs for, uh, lots of schools, uh, which outsource their physical activity, which is great. So there's a nice pathway to growth there. And, and then the online fitness is on a, is on stay around as well. Cause I enjoy it. I get my workout in, uh, but I get lots of people, um, uh, subscribing, which is great. Now, congratulations!
1: What an awesome way to give back to the community whilst also building a successful business at the same time. You mentioned there the COVID and uh, the setbacks that you had from there. What
0: would you say your biggest lessons been from building a business? Yeah, there's yeah, well, it's, it's it, you know <laughs> I'm still learning myself. You know, the, to run a business. You know, I didn't do it. I didn't go to uni. I didn't uh, study business at all. But you know, just I listen to a lot of people that, um, that have been in business a lot and always grab advice and, um, and you know, it's something that I'm really passionate about, health and fitness, you know, and nutrition. So I think it's it's, it's just my life. I love it. And if you can find something that you're really passionate about, um, then you're always going to succeed, I reckon. Uh, and that's, that's, you know, it's a hard, that's a hard thing to do because, you know, you asked. Most people, do they really enjoy their job? I reckon 8 out of 10 would say no. <laughs> they hate it. Um, yeah, it's sad yeah, really, yeah, isn't it? it is. It, it, it's sad. So um, I've, I've been fortunate enough that I actually um, played a professional sport, something that I loved to do for 18 years with the Sydney Roosters, and that gave me a platform to actually start my own business. And it was it was actually through my injuries that I – um, had the idea you know so a lot of people ask me oh that must have been a dark time four years in a row those injuries but you know that's that's now my story that's why I've got mini fit that's what I why I'm so passionate about nutrition now um, it's because I have went through I've got lived experience with with all that stuff and um, now I've, I've directed my new passion into into mini fit because it's you yeah, it, It's very well known that when you finish professional sport and you've been at the heights that uh, people get to, it's really hard to emulate that, really hard to find another passion in your life, and people struggle. And I've been pretty fortunate that uh, I've got a newfound passion in, in health and fitness and mini fit now.
1: What advice would you give to aspiring people across business and sport?
0: Well, as I just mentioned, is to try and find something that you actually love doing um, and then if you, if you do that, if you're fortunate enough that you find something that you love, then it's never going like, to be a job. It's never going to be, oh, got to go to work today. You know, I, I love coming to the office and working on something new on the website or going to do a workout or going to run a kids program at the school. That's all fun to me, you know. So if you find that passion, then it's really not a job. It's just, yeah, it's just your life, you know. Um, and for me, it's now that you know, I wasn't much of a learner at school, uh, but now I just love listening to audiobooks and podcasts, and 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 learning uh, more about nutrition, learning more about health and fitness, and 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 so you always have to evolve and never stop learning. That's that's um, one big thing uh, for me is to just. Keep evolving and and sort of don't stay the same and think you know it all because I don't and probably no one does either.
1: Yeah, thank you. It's a it, that's again a very common theme is do what you love. Don't do something you're passionate about. Follow that dream and and you will succeed in it. And it's difficult, right? In society, we have other financial pressures. We have social pressures mm. to try and break that down in terms of doing something that you're really passionate about. But well, there is a journey you can go on, and, and I feel listening to to people like yourself who've done that through hard work, and and having their own ups and downs, and, and really um really achieving uh, great things post that can can offer some. I think
0: persistence persistence is key too. Like just persist if you if you know that you love this or you love something that you you're studying or you want to do or make turn into a business. I think persistence in anything anything in life um, is is paramount. You know, you, you, you listen to guys that are very successful. There's even movies about it that, you know, they just persisted and persisted and persisted and persisted and then bang, you know, it all comes flooding in. Where some guy might persist and then uh, they give up and they change and they didn't persist long enough or hard enough just for their for their goal, you know.
1: And it happens so often where you see the the person who just gives up at the point in time they don't realize mm. it, but they're so close to breaking through that barrier yeah, to get to the right. other side. And then the people that just keep going and going, it might not happen when necessarily they want it to happen, but it does happen in the end because mm. they because they never
0: give up. Yeah, for sure, definitely.
1: And the final question we ask everybody who comes on the show: Could you define resilience for yourself?
0: Uh, yeah, look, I, I think we we just we've spoken about it already. It's it's never giving up. It's having persistence. You know, like it, everyone's going to have ups and downs in life. You can never have a linear line that's continuing to go up and up and up. That's just not the way life is. Um, there's adversity, and I think. Through adversity, there's always opportunity. That's that's my thought pattern: is positivity. And when you're going through tough times, look look for the the positive in those tough times. Because you know, I had four years of injury, but would I be speaking to you guys now uh, if I went through those injuries? Would I be would I have mini fit now? Would I have my own business now? Probably not. You know, um, so through tough times and adversity, there's always opportunity. Thank you very much. One final
1: question. How do you think the Roosters are going to go next season?
0: I think we'll do very well. We've got a lot of our players back because our injury toll this year was horrendous. It's never been seen before in almost our history. So, And we did really well to make the second round of the semi. So it was a successful year this year. But next year with a lot of our players back, I think um, we'll be right up there again. Oh, awesome well i wish you all the best for minifit i want to say thank you
1: on behalf of myself and all our listeners for joining the show today and sharing your story um and i wish you and the family a great christmas and
0: new year yeah same to you guys merry christmas and i really appreciate um you having me on for a chat you know i love sharing my story and if it can help anyone that will be fantastic
1: thanks for listening to the building resilience podcast make sure you hit subscribe or follow wherever you listen Thanks to our guest today, Anthony Minicello. I appreciate your time. And thank you, our sponsor, Securo. Securo, trust tomorrow. If you'd like to know more about me or Securo, you can head to securo.io. This podcast was made by Afternoon Sport Group.